Hey everybody, I want to talk about a product and platform that I absolutely love and our latest sponsor, Interseller, the prospecting and outreach platform of choice for recruiters and sellers. Whether you're doubling down on business development or recruiting talent, Interseller does all the heavy lifting of finding contact data, automating the email and follow-up process, and syncs all that rich data into 20-plus CRM and ATS platforms. Reach out now and get going on a two-week free trial and let them know you heard about it from Adam on the podcast today. Check out the link on the website. Appreciate it. Welcome to the podcast, where we introduce you to incredible humans who share their journeys with the mission to inspire you to harness your own inner tenacity to drive your life and career forward. And now, your host, Adam Posner. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast, where I bring in the best and the brightest from the world of business, marketing, and entertainment to help you harness your own inner tenacity and drive your career forward. Folks, my guest today is Luke Anderson, founder of Can. Can is a THC-infused cannabis beverage company that is poised its microdose beverage to reshape social drinking and offer a non-alcoholic option. Interesting, we're going to get into it. And true to the heart of the brand, Luke actually wasn't much of a cannabis consumer at all when he launched Can. Instead, he created the product for people like himself who are kind of curious to try out and be able to drink in moderation while still experiencing a buzz. And Can has been killing it lately and definitely has a strong buzz world in the world of cannabis and as a new entrant. So let's get to it. Luke, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Can you hear me okay? I could hear you fine. Well, welcome, welcome, and and it's great to be outside with you in Venice, California this morning. It's a typical uh, New York kind of fall day. You mentioned before that you kind of split your time uh, in Brooklyn, where where my hometown is in Brooklyn. So so how do you how do how do you split it? Is it just kind of a back and forth thing, or is there like a schedule? How often do you come back to Brooklyn? I think I probably spend at least one week out of the month in Brooklyn um, and uh, at least one week out here, but sometimes it's heavier East Coast, heavier West Coast. All depends on what we're trying to do as a company. Um, Most of our sales are in California. It's our home market, but we have a creative team that is New York-based and we we live and die by the strength of our brand and the strength of our creative. So uh, I I do a lot of stuff with them over there. And correct me if I'm wrong, number one cannabis-infused beverage in the state of California, correct? That's right. I I think by volume, we're the number one THC-infused beverage in the country, if not the world. Fantastic. So let's get let's hit the rewind button here. And what I really want to understand first is what drives a person, you know, to graduate from Stanford for engineering and immediately become a high school teacher? Ooh, wow. You are going back. Um, I was a first generation college student. Uh, and, and so that means that, you know, neither of my parents went to college. And as a first generation college student who goes to a school uh, as, as difficult to get into as Stanford and as difficult to graduate from as Stanford, I think you have a unique experience. You, you realize that people who had great teachers and a family history of, of great secondary uh, and university education, um, there's, there's a real leg up there. And when you don't have that precedent to guide you, it can actually be really challenging to do well academically. Um, I, uh, yeah, it's, it's sort of like, you know, if, if your parents have been amazing, um, you know, Tour de France cyclists, you're going to have an easier time learning to ride a bike. Probably your DNA uh, also. Yeah, but if you are going and you don't actually know 
what to do. Like I showed up to college and I didn't even know that I had to declare a major. I, I told my academic advisor, she laughed at me. She said, you know, like, well, it's, you know, getting to that time, like, what are you going to do for your major? And, and I just said, I actually think I just want to be a generalist. Um, I don't, I don't need one. Do people still do that uh, at Stanford? No, you can't. You can't, <laughs> you can't technically do it. You can, you have to have a major. Uh, it's the whole point. So, um, I wanted to be a high school teacher because the teachers that I had growing up made it possible for me to go to Stanford. And if I could play a role in a first generation, low income students, high, uh, you know, college admission process uh, or academic readiness, then I felt like I was having an impact. And, and, and so teach for America is a really cool program. They recruit people from schools like Stanford to go and, and work in, high need, um, largely urban school districts. And, and so I, I taught high school math for a couple of years and, and, where and it was, was that? Uh, Revere, Massachusetts, uh, just, you know, 45 minutes from where I grew up in Concord. Interesting. And what, what was that like, you know, jumping into a, into a high school, especially one that I, that I assume was in a, um, uh, you know, a low income area an area of need. I mean, it's, I, I tell my friends who are stressed about an hour long presentation they have to give at work. I say, well, imagine what it's like to give five hour long presentations every day about something that the audience does not want to listen to. No one wants to hear about math. And then doing that every day for two years. That that's kind of what that's that's like. And and it's excruciating, but if you can do it and if you can get good enough at it to you know help students achieve good outcomes then you're, you're ready for almost any professional challenge. Cause it, you know, nothing can, nothing for me is as hard as, uh, as my first year of teaching. I was going to ask you about that. My, my parents are both veteran New York city board of ed teachers. So I know very well and education's in my blood. My brother's a guidance counselor and I'm the black sheep that went into, you know, business and marketing. Um, what do you, what, looking back on it now, I mean, you mentioned how it was one of the, probably the hardest job you had. I mean, what was that key lesson learned that you've, that you've take with you throughout your career? That if you can, you know, the, if you can do a hard thing, then easier things than that can be done a lot faster and a lot more painlessly. I think a lot of people spend time being anxious and nervous. What does it say about me if I don't succeed at this task? Um, if you fail at something so miserably every day, but keep coming back and then eventually get better at it, like I, I did when it came to teaching math, Fortitude, man. Uh, then you just sort of you're you're able to take your ego out of the equation and show up and and try something and and not be uh, you know as afraid and i think entrepreneurship is is a lot of putting fear aside and just throwing caution into the wind and not being afraid to fall on your face right and not having that not having that safety net right i think that's a huge part of entrepreneurship but what was that moment when you decided you know all right i gave this a shot let's let's move on well, I actually, when I applied for jobs my senior year of college, I applied for 33 jobs. I got rejected from 31 of them. The two that I got were um, Teach for America and uh, a management consulting job at Bain & Company. And I was torn because the, the Bain job was a really good job. It was what, you know, all of the of course, people in my graduating class, you know, they're trying to- freaking Bain, man. Uh, yeah, it was just <laughs> work at Bain, McKinsey, or BCG. Like that was sort of the- yep. the and I didn't really Consulting know what room. any of them were. <laughs> I, I didn't get an interview at McKinsey. I did not get a job at BCG despite getting an interview. And and then Bain uh, gave me an offer. And I said, shit, like, this is a lot more money. This is a lot more prestigious. 
but I feel like I have to go and teach. And I asked Bain if they would let me defer my offer for two years oh, wow. while I did the program. And, and they said, uh, yes. And so I, I was really excited to leave and go to Bain because I felt like they believed in me enough to let me take a That's two big. year sabbatical. That's big. Before, um, before you even like had an established career or any real tangible, you know, work to show, they, they took a chance. To, but look, before we even get into that, um, do you ever talk about your days of, of being a pool director at the golf club? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's funny you bring that up. The only job experience that I had when I was interviewing for Bain was being a swim coach and a pool director at Woodland Golf Club and um, being a manager at my campus's Jamba Juice. And so, you know, the partners interviewing me would be like, yeah, I like you, you're, you're smart, but you, you don't really have a good resume. <laughs> and, and I was like, oh, contraire, my friends, uh -huh. I managed the, the Jamba Juice team to, you know, the best performance that they've had. I, so you I put quantifiable metrics from your Jamba Juice days into your interview. Exactly. And I, you know, I, even with swim coaching, I had five undefeated seasons and before me, you know, they hadn't had an undefeated season in 20 years and, and it was a bottom tier team in the league. The I, I was, yeah. And so I think Bain really values results orientation. Uh, I think that anyone who's putting a resume together, quantifying your impact and an experience, that's the best way to show that you are results oriented. And so um, I, I use that to my advantage and, and great, snuck my way. And great, great, great lesson there. I mean, I, it's interesting because I'm, I'm, in, I'm in recruiting and I talk about hiring and interviewing and everything. And that's a topic that comes out, up a lot with recent grads is how how am I supposed to talk about my experience when I don't have any? Well, experience doesn't always have to be, you know, super professional in a, in a corporate world. It could be anything. It's what did you do in that job? It could be on your newspaper route. It could be working at Jamba Juice or Taco Bell, whatever it is. You know, showing your leadership, showing your your aptitude. And I think that's really, you know, what folks are look, working for. So, so two years up, you, you go over to Bain. Uh, for anybody that doesn't know, extremely prestigious consulting group. Um, my friends that I know have worked at consulting firms, their key takeaway are a couple things. They, they learn process. They learn structure. They learn all about what politics means, office politics means. But what was your experience like and, you know, your key takeaways from your time at Bain? Bain, it's like it's totally different than teaching in that, you know, you aren't an expert in one thing. You have to be an expert in whatever they throw at you very quickly. And so while I was a math teacher and I could, you know, know the algebra two textbook, like the back of my hand, suddenly I became a pet food consultant. <laughs> and within four weeks, I needed to learn everything I could possibly do about uh, pet food. And, and, and I was pretty, pretty bad at it and, and didn't know anything other than, you know, you feed it to the dog and yep. hopefully the dog likes it. it doesn't die. Um, but over the course of uh, four months, I, I got pretty good at it. And, and then, Oh, time to go to a new project. And suddenly I need to learn how to do, um, you know, restaurant menu redesign. So suddenly I need to know how to help the perfume industry be relevant to millennials. Like the tasks and the scope of your work at Bain on a project is so specific. But if you can become an expert in anything really quickly and deliver to the executive team of a big multinational corporation a presentation on what they should do, then you can tackle any intellectual challenge. And so I think Bain helped me learn how to think, helped me learn how to plan work, and helped me learn how to manage to uh, a deadline in a way that uh, no other job I've ever had has done. It's it's the training ground, right? It's a it's a the training camp that really sets you up for a solid foundation in entrepreneurship, right? Like looking back on it now, like you had 
because basically you were running businesses. You were brought in as an expert, and now you had to be an expert on that. But um, how did how did your time at Bain inspire you or prepare you to launch Way Out as your as your first you know experience as a founder? And tell us for anybody who doesn't know a little bit more about Way Out and 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 the and the mission behind launching it. Yeah, Way Out is a nonprofit organization. It's essentially like an incubator that invests in social entrepreneurs who are building queer youth services organizations in areas that it's really hard to grow up being gay um, or grow up being LGBTQ plus. Um, you know, the queer community has become a lot more intersectional, and so what used to be gay rights is now um, LGBTQ plus uh, rights, and that's important because I, I think you know, a lot of the reason why gay people are marginalized is because they feel different. And if you as a trans person, as a, you know, a lesbian, as a pansexual, if you feel different from the gay community, then, you know, the gay community is not doing right by what it's trying to accomplish and normalizing, um, you know, non-heteronormative ways of living. Um, and so a lot of the reason why, uh, I started can was because I, abused alcohol while I was becoming queer, uh, or coming to terms with my queerness. And, uh, when Trump it, got elected, was that, was it a, was that a coping mechanism for you? Was it a, were you yeah. hiding behind, you were hiding behind it? Did being inebriated? Totally. Yeah. If you don't feel comfortable in your own skin, you'll do Find whatever you possibly can to numb, uh, those feelings. And so uh, queer people tend to abuse alcohol and or hard drugs in their twenties. It's very common. Um, and alcohol was my vice that, that was deteriorating my relationships. It was making me difficult to deal with, um, at home. And, uh, I, you know, as I became more comfortable in my own skin, that got better. But, um, I knew that if I had a hard time with it growing up in a very supportive family in Massachusetts with a very loving mother who, you know, believed that no matter what I showed up as I was loved, I, I knew that when Trump got elected and they started rolling back Something. rights for different people in, in different areas for, um, you know, uh, for a kid in Alabama, you know, who's 13 and is afraid of coming out. That's that terrible. was a really scary time. Suicide hotline calls were at all time highs. Um, the Trevor project could not, uh, manage the, the growing demand for its life-saving services. And my friends and I got together and said, Hey, we're lucky. We live in liberal cities. We, we have supportive communities, but there are these queer youth services organizations all over the country that are managing hundreds of kids on $100,000 annual budgets. And so if we could partner with some of them and raise money, give it directly to the organizations themselves to expand programming and you know add a homelessness uh, organizational services, then that would be a good way for us in, in at least the Trump era to combat some of the negativity and the boldness of anti-queer agendas. I love it. And it's a tremendous mission. And correct me if I'm wrong, it's still continuing today, way out. It's now, um, it, you know, it started as one project for a queer youth center in Alabama. Oh, now man. we've raised over a million dollars for over 12 different queer youth centers and it's still going strong. Kudos, man. And, and quick quick plug here, I usually do it at the end, but where could folks, because if they're listening right now, where could they find out more? Wayout.lgbt. Good stuff. Um, pretty, easy, pretty easy site. Um, and it, it, every year uh, they throw events and partner with queer entertainers to raise money. They're really fun. And the money all goes directly to social entrepreneurs in um, highly rejecting environments for 
I, I, I love it. That's fantastic. I was I was in Newark uh, about a month ago and I met some folks doing some similar work uh, in that space. And it's really powerful, and especially being an ally. I mean, having these organizations and learning about them, how we could all help each other out. So kudos on that. But I want to get back to something. Um, you had, and correct me if I'm wrong, a, a self-awareness epiphany when it came to consuming alcohol. Was there, was there a particular moment? Did you wake up one morning and you're like, what the fuck am I doing? This isn't who I am. I feel like shit mentally, physically. Was there that moment, that self-epiphany awareness, self-awareness epiphany? Yes, there was. Um, it was when I was 30, 31, no, 30 years old. Um, I think it was my, yeah, my 30th birthday party. I had a hangover so bad that I was not able to show up to work on Monday until 2 p.m. Just a disaster. And, and that's that was the moment where I realized, okay, I'm not a kid anymore. There are consequences for deteriorating your ability to function on a Saturday. Um, and if that bleeds into decisions you make on a Sunday, that bleeds into your professional life on a Monday, then Can't it's time to up. pump the brakes. Um, I actually even, uh, you know, that weekend I fell off a, a 10 foot balcony and I still have a scar on my eyebrow. Um, and I guess I got it's a, a reminder every day, right? Every day you look in the mirror, it reminds you physically. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's not even the first time that I've had a, an alcohol induced or drug induced, um, injury and, and, you know, one wrong position of my head and I lose an eye. Yeah. Uh, I'm lucky to be alive. I'm lucky to be able to speak as clearly and think as clearly as I do. Um, I probably would speak and think a lot more clearly if I never had damaged my brain cells for so many years. We but, all have, man. Believe me, I'm I'm 43, almost 43, man. There's plenty of brain damage to. <laughs> we're all good. But you know, my friend Jake, uh, my very good friend who worked with me at Bain and who also went through a queer identity struggle while while drinking alcohol in his mid 20s, um, he grew up in Colorado. He witnessed the legalization of cannabis from his front doorstep, and he said, "I think the future is microdose beverage. I think people will want to drink." an alcohol substitute that doesn't give them a hangover and that is less harmful to their brain and body. And I thought it was a stupid idea for so many years. And but you're, then, you're not a cannabis, you're not an avid cannabis user occasionally, but nothing crazy. Well, I mean, I smoked a joint once or twice in college and coughed really hard and was too high and had to leave the party. Um, uh, you know, it was always a, like, this should be fun, but how come I'm not having fun? How come I'm scared? Um, the, but it turns out Jake was right. It's, it's dosing. You know, you need to have something that's approachably mm -hmm. dosed enough that it's not overwhelming or anxiety inducing. Um, and it's form factor. Some people don't want to smoke. Some people don't want to eat a gummy, right. but everyone knows how to drink socially and drink multiple drinks in one social right. setting. So how do you, so how do you figure out a form? And we'll get to that in a second. So I, I, the wheels are moving here you know, inside you, you're like, I, I, and it all kind of came together. Do you think that consulting mindset put these pieces together to monetize and to come up with this idea? Not to come up with the idea. I got to give that all to Jake, but to build, um, it out. to build it. And I think that's why Jake wanted to partner with me is, um, I, I stayed at Bain for six years. I went to HBS mm -hmm. for two years in between. Um, and uh, after my six year at Bain, I had become, uh, an expert at a type of project where you help a big multinational company assemble a cross-functional team to solve a specific problem. And often that problem is launch a new initiative, launch a new product, launch a new brand. Um, and I learned very, very specifically 
how to make a three month long plan to bring something to market locally. And Jake had a brilliant idea. I said, hey, if we can make the first product that'll get me to show up to a dispensary as someone who doesn't like cannabis, then I think we've got something. And I think I know how to make it go. Did you did you did you kind of put a business plan together and projections before you even got into product formulation? Yes. We we said we need to raise at least a million dollars in order for us to quit our jobs. Um, and if we have a line of sight to raising a million dollars, then we'll we'll put on our notice and let's um Sorry, uh, <laughs> getting calls from my husband. Um, yeah, we said if we could raise a million dollars, then um, we've got a really good shot at, um, at at building this and making it successful. Hey, everybody. First, I'd like to thank you all for spending time with me and my guest on the podcast. This show is my canvas to showcase amazing people from the world of recruiting, entrepreneurship, and leadership and unpack their career journeys for everyone to learn from. But this show is also a business generator for me, as well as creating thought leadership and endless amazing content. And I've taken what I've learned in the past three years and over 200 recorded and 100 live shows and distilled it down into a digital playbook that I call the Pause Course. Now you could learn how I build, manage, and produce the podcast and use it to drive real business development and relationships. Today, I'm sharing all of my secrets behind the podcast, and you can get it all at thepausecourse.com. This course is for anyone, whether you're starting out or an advanced podcaster using it for B2B and B2C. It's filled with all of my insights, learnings, tips, tricks, and templates. So get it now at thepausecourse.com and learn all my secrets. Thanks. Take us take it to those early days. Was there ever a doubt or were you always kind of laser focused on success? Because I think in every entrepreneurial journey, there are the speed bumps, the, the, the walls, the closed doors. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was excruciating. It was, um, it was really, really difficult. I, I was in a hundred thousand dollars of credit card debt. Um, I was unable to pay my bills. I, um, you know, was paying myself, uh, really low salary. Jake and I were living together in a, in a one bedroom, apartment. Jake was living in the hallway <laughs> when we got started, but you know, like all, all of those startup garage founder stories, yeah. um, you have to think about this as like you have finite resources and you have a really short amount of time and every, every swing counts. Um, we had some, some really good early swings and we had some really big swing and a misses, um, a, a, in our first six months, but we we launched the product on less than a half million dollars in six months after raising a million, um, and, and that was a, an extremely challenging thing to do. But um, was was I think the most important piece of this journey was when we proved that we could build a manufacturing facility, that we could make the first ever microdose THC beverage in an aluminum can, and sell the first multi pack cannabis beverage. Period. Uh, in a very short amount of time, when people who had billions of dollars were trying and failing to do this, it gave us the confidence that we could do pretty much anything. And and since then, we've just been kind of hitting the gas. I love it, man. But, but let's, I want to talk about the product for a moment here. There, there's a big difference. There's other product, correct me if I'm wrong, keep me in check here. There are other products on the market, which are, which are a fuller, more macro dose THC, kind of like a one and done kind of beverage or a food product. This is one of the, the first early ones that we're microdosing with the idea of it's a much smaller amount 
in the formula so you could consume more of them under the idea of being socially drinking. Because if you just drink, if you're out with your buddies and you're not a drinker, but you want to have a, you know, a, a THC cannabis infused beverage, you don't want to just drink one and then you're done. You're sitting there. You're not going to drink six full ones. You know, mm -hmm. the smaller amounts allows you to consume more, correct? I mean, is that the thought That's behind it? Sessionable drinking. That's the thesis. Um, Jake, Jake always said it's not about how much weed you get from the drink. It's about how many drinks you can have in one sitting. It's also a good business and model. If, if we think about that, it, yeah, it is. It, it really is. Um, but like, look at White Claw. White Claw is $2.50 per ounce of alcohol. Everclear is less than 50 cents per ounce of alcohol, but nobody's buying that right. and yeah. everybody's buying White Claw. And it's because you want to have drinks with friends. You're buying the experience. You're not buying the drink. I'm more of a truly only. guy, but okay. Yeah. It's truly, it's great. I, I mean, I'm a high noon and guy myself. I love high noon. High noon's great. They they're, use they're, real they're, juice. They're potent. Yes, be, that's true. Be careful they, with the high noons, people. So, <laughs> so curious about the like. I, I don't want to go too deep into this, but it's fascinating to me. Just for, like for us out there who don't understand, how the hell do you get cannabis into a beverage? The same way that you get oil into salad dressing without it settling at the top. The same way you get orange soda to taste like orange with real orange oil. You emulsify the oil and you get the particles small enough that it's more reactive to the solution than to the sides of the container. Here's the and a lot of people have struggled to take what is readily available food science and apply it to cannabis. And they say, oh, it's impossible to get the weed in the drink. No, it's not. We, you know, it's the same way that balsamic vinaigrette it looks like a uniform uh, emulsification. You know, exactly. You you have to find the right emulsion and you have to tailor it to your formula in order for it to be successful. And we're still at the beginning stages of having top quality food science talent in Canada. It's so interesting too. And it's so funny. It kind of triggered a memory I had back in college. And it's been 20 years of the time when we were making pot brownies. I think everyone's had this experience in college. And someone told one of my buddies, you do it with the oil. You don't just stick the weed into the brownie and eat it. I mean, that's not you know, the ideal method, but you do it with the oil. And, I, and it's funny. I remember like stinking up the kitchen. We were literally, we had weed and oil in the frying pan. And then we put that into the batter mix and it was perfect. You know, that was the early stages of our uh, uh, culinary cannabis uh, adventure. So give everyone a little kind of um, a point here. As much as you could share, where's the volume at today? How many cases are you guys moving? Is it a month? Is it, you know, a year, or a week? What's the metric here? I like to think about it in number of cans because every can in a consumer's hands is an experience that they're having that they can share and, and enjoy. Um, and most other cannabis beverages report really big volume numbers because they sell as individual cans. And so even though can is the number one beverage in California by a little bit, um, we're actually the number one beverage by a lot. If you think about there's six cans in every six pack from a volume and people don't buy single cans. They buy a six pack. Um, in, in 2020, we did about a million cans awesome. and this year we're approaching 10 million good, cans. Good stuff. Dude. And, and so we, we are, you know, making just an extraordinary amount of these, these little drinks, um, we are trying to get the price down so that it is more approachable for someone who's thinking $18 for a six pack of this or a bottle of wine. It's less well, than high get, noon. Well, no, a high noon is right? a 24 pack for, for, you know, around mm. 20 bucks. 
Yeah, well, right? uh, this, this summer high noons were going for a lot in the liquor stores here in New, in New York, man. The six pack, the six packs, they were like twenty bucks for a six pack. Whoa. Yeah, no, I'm well, serious. There was a demand. There was a crazy demand here. Maybe it was a supply demand issue. But we, we, I remember conversations with my friends were like, shit, it's a lot more expensive than going out and getting the Trulies or the Claws. That's true. It's they, hard they are. Yeah. It's high noons are double the, the Claw Truly. But when you go to Target, a high noon 12 pack is $18.99. And so if you can get a 12 pack of high noon for $18.99 and you have to get an $18, or you, the lowest price to get a six pack of can is $18, you still don't buy as much can no. as you do high noon because you please more people because there's more drinks. Correct. Luke, what's the story behind the name can? Cannabis in a can. It's meta. That simple. Jake came up with it. He said, Genius. you know, we need, we need something simple that you can say at a party. Hey, we got beer, we got wine, we got cans. What do you want? Love it. And, Boom. and it has to roll off the tongue. Like Was it like that? Like, yep, that's it. Done. Like, like done. We're not doing focus groups. We're not testing it out. It was done. Actually, Jake came up when with it just work, the, month, right? the month before I joined. And the reason I joined was because I thought the brand name was so good. That's cool. Talk to us for a moment about the challenges um, and even maybe the opportunities with, with regulation, you know, from state to state and nationwide. You have to build a manufacturing facility in every single state that you're in. And, you know, no other business has to scale by doing that. I have a, a facility in Rhode Island and a facility in Massachusetts. Um, you know, one in Nevada, one in Illinois, one in California. We have one in Canada coming How's on. How's that not cost prohibitive? Or are you, co are you co sharing? It is cost it's extremely cost prohibitive, but uh, we've learned that we can raise money to help get that going. And we believe that this is a, a multi billion dollar brand if we play our cards right. And you're willing to trade the short-term dilution and raise more money so that you can get there in the long run. Who's aside from Rosario Dawson, who's involved now? Um, well, let's. How, how did she get involved? How did she get on board? When I was a um, talk about investors. Back when, back when I used to be straight, um, I, I Rosario Dawson I, was like my dream girl. I watched Sin City was my favorite. She works movie no matter what, gay straight. She'll still get you going. <laughs> God, she's she's. <laughs> beautiful and she's so smart yep. and she's so funny and an amazing entertainer um and i i became really interested in her pattern of activism i, I saw she she had the balls to take on hillary clinton in a speech um when I bernie remember. was running in 2016 and she said shame on you hillary i'm actually a big hillary clinton fan i don't want to get political but i think what hillary did for women in politics uh, it, it's just undeniable and and being you know a trailblazer for an entire community like that it, it takes balls um but rosario has been a, a beloved activist who stands up for marginalized populations and and she stood up for low-income people she stood up for queer people she stood up for people of color time and time again um, the cannabis industry only exists because tons and tons of black and brown people were in jail for what i am doing legally because of my white privilege and that is not lost on me and, and it shouldn't be lost on any operator in cannabis. Um, and one of the reasons why cannabis is evolving and is very, very white is because the money is all coming from white people and the big operators do not have women of color in leadership positions. And the people who sit on the boards of these companies are largely just white men. Rosario is one of the first women of color to serve on a board of a cannabis company. My very good friend, Greg, who uh, I met 
through a very unusual cannabis industry connection. He had worked with her a bunch. He said she was passionate about cannabis justice reform. I got on the phone with her and I, I pitched it to her. Um, and and we we really instantly clicked. We saw the social justice issues eye to eye, and and she said, "Yeah, I'll join the board." Um, but like you know, we have to we have to spend white people's money and redistribute it to people of color. And and I said, "Yep." And and if you join the board, um, I, I'll be excited on two conditions. One, you have to take a meeting with every woman of color in this industry that has not been able to raise venture funding mm. help be a mentor to them. And she said, done deal. That's my pattern of activism. And then I said, number two, if you go to a dope political rally and don't invite me, that's <laughs> over. And she said, I'll never forget it. She said, Oh honey, so, we're getting arrested with Jane Fonda so quick that you won't know what Jane Fonda, Jane Fonda is everywhere. Um, did you fanboy for a little bit at first? Of course. Um, <laughs> Got it. Let me get this out of the way. <laughs> we're going to get it out of the way, Rosario. <laughs> I, I fangirled. It was, uh, <laughs> we're, we have 25. Is that even politically correct anymore? Side note. I mean, I, I mean, can we, we, could, I mean, fan, we haven't canceled the, the term fanboy, right? Like we're still allowed to say fanboy. No, I just say, I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm my feminine side and saying I'm a fangirl, but I, um, we have 25 celebrity investors. Like I, I got, I got, uh, you know, rejected, by um, people that I was really nervous to have conversations with. And I regret that I was so nervous because I fangirled so hard. Um, but in winning over people to invest like Gwyneth Paltrow and Kate Hudson, people who are very, very They're real people. Yeah, very difficult to get their time and convince them to give you their money. Um, I learned that, you know, you can be, uh, what I do is I'll, I'll say, hey, I'm just going to get this out of the way. I really respect you for all of these things that you've done. It's, it's amazing to even just be sitting here in a room with you, but now let's get down to business. This is why I think this is a good use of your time and money. Um, and and they're, they're business people uh, as well. Rosario runs her own fashion brand. Um, Gwyneth Paltrow is a- and Goop is freaking- Enormous, enormous company. Um, and Gwyneth's the CEO. She's not just- you know, I, I heard her on the Stern interview. She is a, an active day-to-day -day leader. She's, literally, she's running a company. She runs the company. She sits on boards of many large companies that my friends uh, work at. She is one of the more savvy business people I've ever worked with. Kate Hudson, you know, she she not only founded Fabletics, but she has founded two or three other consumer packaged goods companies in Bloom, which is a supplements company, King Street Vodka, which we collaborate with a lot. You know, she's she's a brilliant businesswoman as well. Um, and, and so, you know, if you want celebrity investors, make sure that they want to get involved and make sure that you can see eye to eye from a business perspective and build a relationship. Don't leave it to an agent to just slap their name on no, something. You, that you, you don't want Luke, I want, I want to double back to something a little bit more practical and tactical. Talk to us about the, the challenges and opportunities of, you know, it's one thing to sell in a retail location and get distribution and the challenges there, but what about on premise? What about, you know, in bars? How's that effort going? Um, it is not going. Um, you know, there were some cannabis um, lounges that were, uh, you know, somewhat popular in a pre-COVID environment, but the hospitality industry has not migrated over to cannabis and taken its best practices. And cannabis cannot be sold at places where alcohol is sold because the industries are regulated ah, differently. Ah, see, I didn't know that. So you can't go to a bar and say, you know, no. I want a can. I mean, you could get a truly in the white claws. I mean, I've seen that at the sporting events lately, but you can't. You can get a can. And a gangster, by the way. I saw a truly the other day at a, at a concert. It was like 
40 ounce. I was like, that's a lot of truly, man. I'm yeah. not going to feel good after that. Yeah, it's, it's, um, <laughs> that's a bad <laughs> idea. <laughs> it's a bad idea. <laughs> it can. For a 40 ounce can, though, could be pretty nice. Um, tall boy, the, truly. Uh, <laughs> the, we have, we have eight ounce, um, small boys and we have, uh, uh 12 ounce high boys. We call them high boys. Like, hello, play. boy. Yeah. And also, like, you're getting high. Um, tall boy. Um, so we believe that in the future, there will be beer and wine and hard kombucha and can on tap in the same bar. It's going to take on massive tap. regulatory reform in order to get there. Right now, everyone thought CBD drinks were you know, the more approachable version of cannabis and you would go get a CBD cocktail or you would have you know, a CBD seltzer on tap next to uh, an alcoholic beverage. But what I think people will realize is that microdose THC is not dangerous. And if you regulate it by potency, just like beer and wine is alcohol by volume. Yep. ABV. And you do less than 1% THC by volume. That should be able to be sold in grocery stores in bodegas and at bars with a 21 and over, right? Same 21 and over as a healthy alcohol substitute. Interesting. Luke, I mean, First of all, kudos on the success, man. I can't wait to uh, give the product a try. And I'll, I'll give you my I'll give you my straight review. I'll email it right to you. Um, what at this stage of the game, exponential growth, still struggling with regulations and everything. But what's what's the biggest challenge as a found? Well, first of all, how, how many folks do you have in your company right now, full time? We're approaching forty full timers. Wow. Um, <clears throat> it feels weird to say that because it feels like just yesterday it was me and Jake mixing things in kegs in our backyard. Um, but we've got, we've got 40 full timers across two countries and, and five States within the U S. Um, and, and we believe we'll be, uh, uh, over a hundred by the end of next year. What keeps you up at night? Keeping those people happy, man. It, it is impossible to build a category. It's impossible to start a company and have it not go under, but it is even harder to build a category to create a product that people don't understand. Um, you know, when White Claw exploded, it didn't invent hard seltzer. No, it's been around it, since freaking the Zima days when I was growing up and getting exactly underage, in, getting standing outside of 7-Eleven trying to get the older guys to freaking buy a Zimas. And Zima did not exactly end well. Um, or Pepsi and, Clear. <laughs> and so, yeah, Pepsi Crystal didn't either. We, we have to... Um, we have to spend a lot of money to educate the consumer to stay relevant and to bring this category into legitimacy. And it relies on our people. Um, uh, you know, the, the 40 people that work at this company keep it afloat every day with their hustle. And I think everyone feels burnt out and overworked, but if they're happy uh, and they like showing up and solving problems with one another, then it makes it worth it. So it keeps me up at night is keeping the talented people on my team happy and motivated to stay. Um, we, we lost a really talented person uh, in the last a couple of months. And and that keeps me up at night. Hmm. Um, how do we find someone that's as talented as she was to do that job? Uh, you know, and, and in a world where, you know, people who are talented are in high demand and get paid a lot more than they can get paid to work in a startup. I do this for a living, man. So we could talk afterwards if you're looking for some talented people, but you know, you're, you're, you're a student of the game. What's exciting you about the, the, the cannabis industry as a whole? Is there a certain product innovation subcategories aside from your own? I think microdose is really interesting. And I think the more consumer acceptance there is of microdose products, not the just more me, psilocybin, MDMA, yeah. everything. 
Well, legal. It's not about like drugs are bad. Sugar is a drug. You know, caffeine's a drug. Caffeine is a drug. Alcohol. Alcohol is a really bad drug. Um, it's about the amount of the drug that you're using, and like, if if we can as a society understand that approachable amounts of intoxicating substances are not going to send us into the sun. Um, then we'll make smart regulations and we will do criminal justice reform that is mindful uh, and sensible. But right now we have to make it mainstream enough with, with a lot of fancy marketing mm-hmm. so that people have conversations at the dinner table and say, you know what, maybe cannabis wasn't as bad as I thought it was. Maybe reefer madness was wrong. Um, and, and, and we're doing that work. Um, but I, I, you know, my two milligram edible friends and, and the people selling mushroom chocolate in Venice, like, you know, I feel like I'm doing similar work to, to them. And, and if we all help normalize, um, you know, drug isn't a dirty word, uh, and, and help change the way people think about substances, we'll probably have fewer drunk driving accidents. We'll probably have fewer, less domestic uh, violence, less domestic violence, you know, harmful substance abuse issues um, if we can educate people on what safe means. That's what I'm talking about, man. Let's bring it home here. Um, What does the word authentic mean to you? Don't strategize about what to say to whoever you're in the room with. Um, People, uh, when I was a high school teacher um, and I didn't know what I was doing, people smell fear and inauthenticity and and they, um, you know, are skeptical. Um, don't, don't game things for your own, um, you know, value. Um, don't, don't be focused on what can I, what chess pieces can I move to get what I want? Focus on what you feel and, and be real about it. Um, you know, it's, it's easy to just eliminate the filter and be honest Um, and if you do, then, you you know, I used to, when I was a closeted queer person, I was always spending all this time. Like, what if people find out I'm gay? What if people find out that I, you know, think boys are cute? Like, what are they going to think about me? And I would compress my identity and, and be inauthentic because my identity was, uh, you know, not something I was proud of. Um, when you feel comfortable in your own skin and you don't have anything to hide, uh, it's a lot easier to do bigger and better things. And, and I think, um, I'm glad that I am not uh, afraid of anything and that anybody who knows me probably knows the same set of information. Naked mama proud right there. I love it. Luke, what is, what is the single greatest piece of advice that you've ever received that you take action on every day? Don't be an asshole. I don't take action on it every day, but, um, you know, the things I regret most about this journey are the times that I was an asshole to people, uh, to my friends, to investors when I was really stressed, to my teammates. Um, and, you know, uh, no matter what, you can't force somebody to do something they don't want to do. You can convince them, you can lay options on the table, but people who are mean to people when they don't get their way, they don't win long term. Um, and, and I've made mistakes and, and have been, you know, an asshole at various points in my career, but the, the more I realize that that doesn't serve anybody, um, the happier I get and the more people want to work with me. Could have said it better, man. And it, and it, and it just resonates so deeply, you know, do things, do things the right way, treat people the way, you know, you want to be treated yourself and the world's just going to open up to you. So Luke, last but not least, 
you know, you look back on your life and your career to this point, and you go back to those days that you were talking about earlier, you know, falling off that, you know, poor death, 10 foot porch, gashing your head, hiding behind a mask. And you think back to those lowest points and you had to find yourself and you had to pull yourself up and harness that inner tenacity that you have as a human, as a founder, as an entrepreneur. What is your focal point to show gratitude? What is your compass in life? Luke Anderson, what is your North Star? You said make mama proud. It's, it's honestly like, what, what would my mom be proud of me for doing? It's, it's silly. Um, my mom's going through brain cancer treatment right now and I'm spending a lot of time at home with her. Um, she's had two brain surgeries and she gets up every day and, and fights. And, um, the only reason I went to college is because she raised me as a single mom and made sure I could go to a good school every day. And, and if she could do that, then, Um, you know, I want to make the most of what I can do, you know, and what opportunities I have. Um, and it's not just how much money can I make for myself? It's, it is how, how much can I change the world? How much can I change the way people think about their own substance abuse, uh, or misuse or use and, and how, how can I, uh, help, um, someone just feel better about their, you know, drinking habits. Um, that's a start. Um, but I, I think I'll be, a, a, you know, I, I'm addicted to entrepreneurship. Um, I love creating something out of nothing and I, I want to continue to do that for the rest of my life. And, um, I think as long as I do it in a way that doesn't, um, you know, destroy, uh, things, if I'm doing it in a way that is a net positive, um, then, then my mom's proud of me. So I guess that's it. I love it, man. Luke, this, this has been great. And I want you to hang with me for a moment here after I sign off. Um, I want everyone to check out, if you want to find out more, to go to drinkcan.com. And that's can with two N's. And if people want to connect with you personally, where can they find you? What's the best way? Oh, I'm on uh, Instagram. I, I typically respond to DMs at, at uh, Mr. Underscore Luke Anderson. Um, but at drink can D R I N K C A N N. Um, on Instagram, it's where a lot of people communicate with our brand. Um, fun, playful, anti-alcohol, playful, like, you know, THC versus CBD humor. It's, it's a, it's a good time. Um, and, and if we connect then, um, uh, you know, uh, I'm, I love helping young entrepreneurs. I, um, have invested in a few companies. I only invest my money in stuff that I really want to help take to a success. Um, and I don't have a lot of money to invest, so <laughs> it's, it's small, <laughs> but, Everything um, else, yeah, I, I, I was helped out by some really amazing entrepreneurs get to this point and, and I would love to return the favor to people who are starting businesses. Good stuff. Everyone listening. This is a good one. This is a good one. I want to check out can they're doing some great stuff over there. Remember you could find out more at the podcast.com. Follow us on other social media channels. Remember sharing means caring. So if you like this episode, send it around. And you know where to find out everything at thepodcast.com. Remember, take care of each other. Look out for one another and catch us next week for another great episode of the podcast. Take care, everybody. Wisdom is forever. But for us, it's time to go. Thank you for joining us. Luckily, we'll be back with our next episode soon. Jam-packed with more incredible humans. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and sharing. To join the conversation, search The podcast on LinkedIn. 
And to catch up on past episodes and more info, please visit www.thepausecast.com. <laughs>